If you are, uh, if you are nearsighted, uh, raise your hand. If you, anybody nearsighted in the house? Okay. Couple, couple, three. Okay. If you're farsighted, anybody farsighted? Oh, a few, a few of you. Okay. Good. I, I, um, I, have this we- I have this weird thing. I don't know if that's surprising. I have this weird thing uh, called monovision. Any, anybody do monovision in here? Yeah, all right, okay. Monovision is where you use one eye for close-up and you use one eye for far away. So my uh, left eye is nearsighted and so I have a contact that helps me see things up close. And my right eye is farsighted. I have a contact that helps me see things far away. And it actually works really good. Like God designed our bodies in such a way that your brain will actually shut off the image from the eye that you're not using. So when things are up close, my brain uses what my left eye sees, and when things are far away, it uses my right eye. And it works really, really great until I'm working on the car or I'm under a counter working on a sink or something, and I'm in a position where something blocks my left eye. And then I'm trying to look at something close with my far away eye, and I can't see it. And I can't get my head in a position that I can see it with the eye that I see close-up things with. And it becomes incredibly uh, frustrating. Um, I want to share with you today a first handful of verses from John chapter 8. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when it comes to our sin, our sin, personal sin, and the sin of others, I think that um, Jesus wants us to be nearsighted. Like he wants us to see our own sin, the sin that's close up to us, he wants us to see that clearly, but he wants us to see the sin of others, the sin that's far away, he wants, to see, he wants us to see that kind of blurry, not real clear. And the problem is that in our lives, we typically see that in reverse. It's typically in reverse. Um, Think about it this way. We typically view the sins of others with a microscope because then our sins seem more minimal. So we typically do it the reverse. I, I think God wants us to be nearsighted so that we see our sin clearly, but the sins of others are blurry, and we usually do that in the, in the opposite. We're very critical of the sins of other people and the things that they're doing, but we tend to let our sins slide. Uh, I'm not as bad as they are. <laughs> they're do- I would never do that. I would never speed, but I would do this over here. Um, and, and, and let me tell you, because I've I've been a little critical, you know, of, of speeding. Uh, I have. But I also have tried to be very uh, just real with you to say, when I'm in town or I'm going to Wichita, whatever, I typically just follow this. I just drive the speed limit. But I am of the opinion that when you get on the interstate to go somewhere, it is the Autobahn. Uh, and so, like, we're leaving Tuesday morning to go to Idaho. Uh, we're going to see how fast the truck goes. 
Because they're like, I know every state is low. They don't have enough troopers. Can't be everywhere. You got a big state, Wyoming. We're going to see if we can find some. Uh, mostly because it's a 20-hour drive, and I don't want to be on the road that long. Anyway, uh, we'll see. So I just, I just want to be transparent with you. I want you to know I, I, got, my, I got my issues too. Uh, we're going to look today in John chapter 8 and an encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders. And if you, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like Jesus is constantly having these encounters. They're, they're like always negative with the religious leaders. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. Um, the, the week before what we read in John chapter 8, Jesus had come into town somewhere around Wednesday it was the Jewish uh, Feast of Booths. Um, I think Hebrew, it's, it's uh, Sukkot, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, probably not. Um, but it is the Jewish celebration of harvest. So it's a huge feast, it's a seven day feast, and um, it's to celebrate the incoming of the harvest. And so Jerusalem is filled with people. There's just a lot of joy, a lot of hat, like everybody's excited because their barns are full and it's just a great, time and a great celebration. And so Jesus has been going into the temple every day since about the middle of the feast. And he's been teaching and talking and healing. And it just, it's made the religious leaders like really upset. And so we get to the end of the, the feast and the next several days, there's still a lot of stuff going on, a lot of things happening in town. And Jesus has gone back on what would be the eighth day. So the first day after the feast of uh, booths and he goes back into the temple in the morning and he begins to um, preach. And I, I want to talk today, I want to notice today in this interaction that he has with the religious leaders. They come to him to test him again and he turns the table on them. And he teaches them a lesson about being relevant in every situation. And so we're just going to jump into John chapter 8, verse 2 this morning. Here's what it says. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. So he'd, he'd been coming to the temple every morning. So it's kind of a habit that he developed. And all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now, I, I assume in, in your life outside of Adam, uh, there are things that you typically do in the morning and there are things that you typically do in, in the evening. We kind of all have this kind of routine and rhythm to our, our lives. And so it doesn't always happen the same for me, but I like to get up in the morning and I go up and I make a cup of coffee. Andrea makes homemade hot chocolate. I don't know, she just follows some recipe. I don't know, but she makes it. Anyway, it's the best hot chocolate ever in the whole world. And so she makes it for me in this big Tupperware container. And then I make a cup of coffee and I put a scoop of this hot chocolate mix in it every morning. It's, I call this my cafe mocha and it's fantastic. And so I make this cup of coffee and then I'll, I'll go and I, and I try to um, sit down or, you know, maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm responding to comments or going through direct messages for Trent stuff. Or I really like to sit there and um, get a book. I'm, I'm reading several books. I'm actually rereading several books right now um, from uh, David Foreman. Uh, he's a Jewish guy who has an incredible understanding of, of Old Testament scripture and history and Eastern thought. It's, he's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. 
Anyway, I've, been, I've read through his only three books and I, I'm, I'm starting back through them again, really in, enjoying that. So I like to read a little bit, go sit at the table then after I've done that for a while and, and uh, go through my book of mysteries and do a little devotion time. But I kind of have this rhythm and routine. At the end of the day, after Andrea and I are done, like we clock out working for Trent, then we like to sit on the couch downstairs and, and we watch an episode of uh, The Blacklist. We're watching through The Blacklist. Um, or, we, or we watch a King of Queens or something like that. And we watch a show or two and, and, then it's, and then it's off to bed. And so we all have like a rhythm to our life. We develop these kind of routines in the morning, in the evening. Um, and, and it's a pretty standard practice now we've seen in scripture. Pretty standard practice for Jesus to get up in the morning and go to the temple and teach the people. So it's not odd when we read verse two here, where it says that Jesus got up in the morning and he went to the temple. And you're like, okay, that makes perfect sense. What is odd though, is what happens next. This is a little more surprising. The next couple verses, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they placed her in the midst and they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the, in the act of uh, adultery. So the, when do you think in first century Jerusalem, most adultery took place? Don't answer that. I don't, like, I don't wanna know. <laughs> don't answer, because then somebody's gonna go, you know when most adultery takes place? Uh, don't, don't answer that. Just like I would assume that probably if you're committing adultery in first century Jerusalem when you have no electric light bulbs, my guess is that that's probably happening at night. Probably happening at night when you have a little bit of the cover of darkness, not everybody can see real clearly, all you've got is a candle and so it's easy to hide things from other people. And I think, I think probably the vast majority of it, like remember these people, this is an agrarian society. They're like working in the fields and whatever. And when the sun comes up, they're out in the field. Like there's no time to mess around. And so if you're going to cheat, you're probably gonna do it in the evening. As it begins to get dark, nobody can see quite as well, you're gonna sneak out and, uh, and, and do something. The, the text leads us to believe that, um, that, 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 it's just my opinion, by the way, scripture is just my opinion that it probably happened at, at night. But the text does lead us to believe, just in the way that the text is put together, that this woman who was caught in the act of adultery was set up. The, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they, they came up with this sting operation and they worked it out and they picked the guy, the John, and they said, hey, okay, you're gonna go to this woman. We highly suspect that she's going to be vulnerable to your advances. And so you're gonna go in and you're gonna give us some sign when you're in the middle of things and we're gonna burst in and we have caught you in the act of uh, adultery. And in fact, the, the Hebrew word that is translated caught in the act, that, that phrase, it, really the word means taken. And so you get this idea that, that what, like this was not just, hey, I know this happened. This was the religious leaders, a group of them, bursting into the house at the right moment and they take her literally from the middle of the act. 
This was obvious, there were lots of witnesses. This was a very uncomfortable situation and setting for um, uh, everyone. And so they, they take her from the act. If it happened at night, Jesus doesn't come to the temple until the next morning. And so they have this woman in custody somewhere, somehow, probably in, a, in, in like not very clothed, probably not a lot of clothes, like maybe a sheet or some blanket over the top of her. And she's there the rest of the night until the next morning when Jesus shows up at the temple. And when he does, the religious leaders, we know the kind of people they are and the things that they do, and so they bring this poor woman, they enter into the temple as Jesus is teaching not just some of the people, the text says. In, in verse two, it says, all of the people came to hear Jesus. This was a huge crowd of people in Jerusalem on the day after this huge feast where hundreds of thousands of people came to town. And they're there listening to Jesus and the religious leaders bring her in and you know they're making a scene. Like they're bringing her in into the back of the room and they're causing a ruckus. Here she is, scantily clad, obvious something is going on, and they're making noise. They're pointing it out. They're making sure everybody knows that they just entered the room, and they walk up to the front, and they just kind of surround Jesus while he's up there. And here's this woman in the center of the group. Now, if the woman had been taken at night, and if she had been waiting all night for this moment, my guess is she knows what's going to happen. This is a Jewish woman, she knows the law. She knows that her parents are gonna find out, her friends and family are gonna, like everybody's gonna, this is front page news now because the religious leaders are in, involved. And, and while the focus of the story we find out are gonna find out in just a moment is really on, on Jesus, re remember that for this poor woman, life has just come to an end. All she wants to do in that moment is die. Like, just kill me now and be done with this. Humiliation upon humiliation. This is a horrible, horrible end to this event. She had no idea that this was gonna happen when she went into the room with the John the night before. This was a terrible, terrible situation. And, and, and she most likely not only wanted to die, but believed she was going to die and not see another day because she knew the law. She knew what could happen to her. And so before the whole crowd, they bring this woman up and they air her dirty laundry in front of everybody. Now, most of us in the middle of our, in the middle of our sin of choice, we aren't thinking about getting caught. Most of us in the middle of our sin of choice, we're not thinking about the consequence of that sin. We're not thinking about getting caught. What we're thinking about is just the moment. We are fully in the moment. We're focusing on how we feel. I, I, I know I'm committing this sin. I know I shouldn't be committing this sin, 
but this feels good. I like this. And, and, and maybe that feeling comes because we're trying to numb some pain in our past. And, and in the midst of whatever sin that we're, we're doing, it's, it's work, like it has an immediate effect. We're be, like, we're numbing out to whatever pain has been there. That's why we keep going back to those sins. Because it works for a short time. Maybe we're, we're, we're trying to numb the pain. Maybe we're trying to experience a love because the only version of love we've ever seen is some twisted, self-serving, narcissistic, or abusive kind of love, and we're trying to find real love, but we keep going back to the same kind of love we've experienced before because we just don't know any other way to get it. And so we're back in the same situations over and over again, and we're trying to find something better because the world tells us all you need is love, and we're trying to find that, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. Or, or, or maybe it's one of those situations where she's there that night in the middle of it, and what she's thinking about is how her, her husband, man, I have no idea if she was married, but her husband maybe, how, how he isn't, like he just doesn't care about me. He doesn't really love me. He's all about work. He's all about whatever. He's all about other things. He's not giving me what I need. And on the, on the other side of that, if, if, if you're a, a man, surely at some point in your life through your mind has gone a thought like this, well, if she would just give me what I want, fill in the blank, whatever it is, I wouldn't have to search for it over here. So maybe that's what's going through her mind. I just, like whatever it is, fill in the blank. We all know when we're in our uh, sin of, of choice, we aren't thinking about getting caught. We're thinking about how we feel or how it makes us feel or how it helps us forget the pain, the struggle. The, the point is this woman wasn't considering the consequences. She maybe was just trying to find a way to heal the hurt inside. And she got caught up in a situation that she was set up for. Now, now look, she's guilty. This probably isn't the first time she, like they picked her for a reason. But there was probably a reason she was doing that. So in the midst of this moment where instead of thinking about the consequences, she's thinking about how she feels in the moment, this group of men storm in and they haul her off and she's terrified and she's alone and she's wondering all night what's gonna happen to her. She probably is thinking, where's the guy? How come they didn't get him? And if she overheard the religious leaders talking at all, she kind of has an idea of what they plan for her. And she's convinced that she's not gonna, she's not gonna survive. This is a terrifying moment for this woman. I don't know how many hours it was between the time they burst in, the time they paraded her in front of Jesus, but, but she's terrified that entire time. She doesn't know what is going to happen. And so here's what the men um, say to Jesus in the next verse. In the law, by the way, Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? 
Now, this is an interesting way to end, end that. Like, um, th there's several things that, that the religious leaders are trying to accomplish here, and they cleverly word this, like this is what they were working on all night long. What is opening statement? We're the prosecution. What is our opening statement going to be to Jesus? They have crafted this line. And, and look at what they've done. They, they've said first, there's a law. There's a rule of law, there's a code, and God himself gave us this code. This is not just some law made up by man. This is God's law, and God said, here's the way you live. Here's the right and wrong. Here's the rule for how to live, and everybody knows that adultery is, is, is part of that. Like, no, like, this is not a good thing. Don't do this. And so right off the bat, they bring up this law. Everybody immediately knows exactly what they're talking about. They know what the law says, both what the law says to avoid. They also are immediately aware of the consequences of the law. Because the law just doesn't say, here's the law, don't do this. It says, if you do this, here's the result of that. Here's the consequence if you break that law. And so right out, they're like, here, here you go, there's a law. Now, by the way, the law for the Jewish people said that in order to convict a person of a sin or a crime, there had to be two witnesses, two or more witnesses. And the religious leaders made sure that they covered all of their bases. There were far more than two who burst into that room and caught her in the act. So there's a law, what you don't do, there's a consequence for it, and they have met all of the requirements for condemning this woman by the law. The next thing they, they say is they bring up Moses. Now, none of them would probably say this out, out loud. Like they, they were the people of God, but if there's a moment where Moses and God seem to differ, they're gonna go with Moses. <laughs> Like, th like this is a big deal. In fact, um, in, in Matthew chapter uh, 19, it is, Jesus actually condemns these very religious leaders. He says, for setting aside the law of God in order to follow the concession of Moses. Like he's like, look, you, you ignore the law of God in order to follow this thing that, that Moses, just this man, wrote. So you're like, you claim to be people of God who follow the law, but when you don't really like the law, you're gonna do whatever Moses says down, down here. So they've covered the law. They've brought up Moses, who they believe is the authority. Moses has said, this is what happens. Moses commanded us to stone women like this. And we already know that they've met the requirements to, um, uh, to bring her in front of the judge and to carry out the sentence of stoning. They have enough witnesses, they're good. There, there is, uh, let me say it this way, in their mind, there is no way they can lose. The law has been stated, Moses has been questioned, and then they ask Jesus this question, what do you say? Now, we, we, we gotta, catch this because the law is clear. It is unambiguous. We know exactly what the law says. Moses has provided consequence and there are witnesses and all of their stories have been corroborated. 
The, the point is this, who cares what Jesus has to say? Doesn't matter. What Jesus thinks about this moment has no bearing on what's going on. She has broken the law, there are plenty of witnesses, and the result is that she should be stoned. She should be killed for her crime. That, that's all they needed. They did not have to bring Jesus into this question at all. He, he, was, he was, can I say this? He was irrelevant to this situation. They didn't need him. But they asked him. Here's why I think they asked him. If you go back and, and, and you read, um, if you go back and, and you read John chapter 5 and 6, you'll find out that several times Jesus makes this um, statement. Uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And, and, then he, and then he says whatever it is he, he's thinking. And so what Jesus is doing when he says that over and over again in John 5 and 6 is he is setting himself up as an authority to interpret the law of God. He, he's saying, I'm telling you, here's how the law of God should be interpreted and applied. He is setting himself up as an authority. And so the Jewish leaders, they think they're pretty clever because now they're coming to him and they're saying, look, we have this question of the law. You've claimed to be an authority. And so now we're gonna ask you in this public session where all of the people are here to listen, we're gonna ask you, what do you say? They're, kind of, they're throwing Jesus' words back at him. I, I love my wife. Sometimes she does that to me. And she says, didn't you just talk about this in your message the other day? And I'm like, you are not supposed to pay attention to that stuff anyway. Like, I listen to everything else, but don't listen to the stuff. And so, ah, nobody likes that. And so here they are, and Jesus, they're saying, look, Jesus, you were claiming to be an authority. Now we're telling you it's time to weigh in on, on this. But Jesus knew some things, like by this time in the first century, the Roman occupation was in full swing, and Rome had said to the Jewish people, you cannot carry out corporal punishment for any reason without the official stamp of Rome. It, like, it's why the religious leaders take Jesus to Pilate, because they can't kill him themselves. And so Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that these men brought this woman to him, caught in the act of adultery, so, like, she's, like she's guilty, but he knows that the religious leaders and he himself can't carry out sentence on her because it's forbidden by the Romans who are in charge. But if Jesus says, kill her, the religious leaders are going to run off to Rome and they're going to say, hey, this guy Jesus, he's subverting the law of Rome and he's commanding us to kill this woman even though you say we can't do that. And if Jesus, on the other hand, comes to this point and he says, look, I already know that Rome won't let us kill this woman and so in all practicality, we can't do anything about this. And so Jesus is going to say, look, guys, I don't, I don't think we can kill her. Because Rome says we can't. The religious leaders are going to turn around to all the people who have come to listen, and they're going to say, this guy, Jesus, he doesn't follow God's law, and so he cannot be the Messiah. This is the catch-22 that Jesus finds himself in. But as Jesus often does when he's talking to the religious leaders, he doesn't really answer their question. Instead, Jesus just stoops down and begins to write in the dirt with his 
finger. And as they continued to ask him, so the religious leaders, they're pressuring him, they're, they're, they're demanding that he respond, and he's just stooped down riding in, in the, the dirt. He finally stands up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just shuts up and he squats back down and he begins to write on the ground. Now, uh, uh, according to Jewish law, this woman could be tried and convicted. There are more than two witnesses. Her, like it doesn't matter what she says. She's guilty, everybody knows it, this is the end. And the weight for the Jewish people of making a false claim against somebody, of, of, of being a false witness, it was balanced by the way that they handled stoning. So the primary witness and the secondary witness in bringing a case before a judge, those two people were the first two people who had to throw the stones at the guilty person. You, you had to look the person in the eye as you threw the stone. That, and this was, not a, this was not a pebble, people. These were large stones. And other people got involved in the stoning only if the first stone and the second stone didn't kill the criminal. That's when other people picked up stones and began to, to throw them. This, like, this is, like this was not a party. They did not enjoy this. This was a very solemn, difficult experience. Now, I don't know what Jesus wrote on, on the ground, but it must have been relevant to the moment because of what happens next. Like all of the woman's accusers, these religious leaders who have stormed in and made this big show and they were gonna catch Jesus and, and they had it all figured out. They'd worked on it all night long. They knew what they were gonna do. All of her accusers and all of them who really were just trying to destroy Jesus' reputation, they walk out of the room empty-handed. Not only do they not get to carry out sentence on her, but they don't really get their prize. What they wanted was to turn everybody away from Jesus. And instead they walk out quietly. It's a really weird moment. Jesus takes the focus off of the woman's obvious sin and he puts the focus I think on the many hidden sins of her accusers. Because he asked this question, before you throw a stone at her, can a stone be thrown at you? That's obviously not literal because we have the, the text, Jesus didn't really say that, but this is the, this is the crux of his, his question, his statement. Like, like she's guilty. Absolutely, she's guilty, but before you throw a stone at her, can a throw, stone be thrown at you? And, and what Jesus does in that moment, it, it seems irrelevant. It seems like it doesn't matter. Like, it, like, it's, like it's separate from what's going on in, in the story. It's separate from the woman. In her, like she probably was like, what in, my life is hanging in the balance. What are you 
doing. What Jesus does, it just doesn't fit. This woman's life was, was, was there and it was on the line and Jesus just gets down and starts riding in the, the dirt. And only when pressured does he stand up, utter 17 words, and then he just stoops down again and continues to write. In, in that moment, Jesus expressed truth with grace, but it wasn't like anybody expected it to be. Like they expected him to condemn the woman because of the truth of her sin. The law was clear. What Moses said was like, there's no way around this. They expected him to deal with the truth of her situation and sin. Jesus fulfilled both truth and grace with her. He just turned the truth away from her and directed it to her accusers. He brought truth to them while at the same time showing grace to this woman who had already been devastated. And so they leave and, and here's what happens. Jesus stood up. All the religious leaders are gone. It's this woman. And of course, the, all of the people are still, the crowd is still there. And it's just the two of them, though, it, it, it seems. And, and he says to her, woman, where are, are that, like that's a, he was not being derogatory. That's just the way they talked then. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where are your accusers? Where are the eyewitnesses? Where are the guys who are supposed to throw the stone at you? Where are they? And she said, nobody Lord, by the way, this is not an admission of recognizing him as Messiah. This is just, he, she recognizes he's in a position of authority. That's what that word means. So she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, um, th th this, is, this is hard for us to, to get, I, I realize, because the woman in the story as far as we know, she never repents of her sin. I, I guarantee you she's sorry. <laughs> I guarantee you if she could go back and do it again, she wouldn't have gotten caught in that position. The last few hours have, literally, have been hell for her. But there's no indication that she repents of doing it. She never asks for forgiveness. As far as we know, she never becomes a follower of Jesus and she is never mentioned in scripture again. We know nothing about what happens in her life because of this moment. But Jesus knew that this moment wasn't about her anyway, it was really about him and about his accusers. And I think Jesus revealed truth to the religious leaders. I think that when he knelt down, he wrote something, I don't really know what it is, but he wrote something that condemned them in the same way that they were trying to condemn her. 
And if they had, like, like this just occurred to me, if, if they had surrounded him like we expect they did, that's what they tended to do in the other stories in Scripture where they deal with him. If they had surrounded Jesus, the way they would have done that is that the oldest, most sage religious leaders would have been closest to Jesus, and, and as they got farther away, it would have been the younger ones. It would have been the ones that didn't have as much authority. And so the ones closest to Jesus would have been the ones with the most power, the most authority, they knew the law the best. And Jesus gets down to the ground and begins to write in his finger. And if what he's writing is condemning to them, maybe he's writing out the timeline of their plan. Maybe he's writing out the words that they used that night that he didn't have any idea about. And they recognize this guy knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. I don't know what he wrote there, but the story goes on to tell us that the religious leaders, they left the oldest first and then the youngest. And that would make sense as they stand there over Jesus and they can begin to read what he has written in the dirt, which by the way, is easily erasable and nobody else can see. Only the religious leaders can see what it is that he's writing in the ground. Jesus doesn't stand up and say, you were gonna air her dirty laundry, now I'm gonna air your dirty laundry. And he begins to, like, he doesn't say it out loud, he just gets down on the ground and he writes. And as they recognize their sin in what he's writing, they, they turn around with their tail between their legs and they walk out. And the reason the youngest ones leave last is because they're the last ones to get up to Jesus and read what he wrote on the ground. And we're not told in the text, but I suspect that as Jesus got up and he dealt with the woman, he probably made sure to walk over everything that he had just written so that nobody else knew what it was. They had come to trap Jesus. And they were thinking about only about the truth of this woman's sin and not about the truth of their own. And yet Jesus shows grace to this woman who by all rights should have been condemned. But he recognized that she was a pawn in the plan to trap him. She was absolutely guilty. She knew the truth of that. The religious leaders and everybody in the room knew that truth. But she didn't come to Jesus for forgiveness. She came to Jesus by force. And Jesus knew that he couldn't then force her to repent. He could only open the door to reconciliation. If you have somebody in your life who has dealt with addiction, you know you can't bring them to that place of, of getting clean. They have to come themselves. And that's the situation that we find here with Jesus I think he did that with the woman. See, by staying judgment, by disbanding her accusers, and then by simply saying, go, but don't continue to sin, Jesus opens the door to her, but she has to step through it. And we have no indication that she did. As we prepare to move into our first home, it's gonna be important for us to, to build the future um, in part on the core values that you see on the wall behind me. To be real, to be relevant in every situation and to be relational. 
Uh, in fact, I'm really excited to share with you on the 23rd about this core value of relational because I feel like as we have worked through the process with the architect on the building, that that core value is, is gonna come through like a spotlight. I'm so excited for you to see that and to see how our core values can be um, expressed architecturally with, without any words. It, it just is really cool the way it's coming together. But we've got to be real as we move forward. We've got to be real about who Jesus is and we've got to be real about who we are. And we also have to look more like Jesus in our lives and less like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. We've got to be nearsighted about our own sin, meaning we've got to be truthful with ourselves first. And when we don't live up to Jesus' standard, we've got to recognize that. We've got to repent and we've got to be reconciled and we've got to try to live and look more like him when, when we choose our own ways instead of his ways. We, we've got to see our sin in detail. But when it comes to the sins of others, we don't need to see that as clearly. We're not supposed to ignore the sins of others. I don't think we're called to do that, to just turn a blind eye and say, you can do and live whatever you want to. We're not supposed to ignore the sin of others, believer, other believers. We're just supposed to be truthful about our own sin and then full of grace when we deal with the sin of others. That's how we become relevant in every situation, by expressing truth with grace, by diffusing situations instead of, instead of amplifying them and blowing them up. And by recognizing that when somebody attacks us or they come after us, they're really coming after Jesus. And we need to respond just the way he did. We need to respond in a way that deals with the moment and what really is going on instead of the way that somebody might just be trying to trap us or him. Maybe it would be good for us to take a lesson from Jesus and sometimes just to get down on the ground instead of airing somebody's dirty laundry, just to get down on the ground and just to very quietly and in a closed situation say, hey, here's what's really going on. How, how can we work in this situation so that we both can look more like Jesus? We gotta be real. We gotta be relevant to the culture around us. And that doesn't mean watered down and, and, and it doesn't mean that we don't share the, the gospel full, like, like we have to do that. What it does mean is we recognize the situation and then we respond to it in a way that brings about repentance and opens the door to reconciliation. Let's pray. God, thanks for just this day and thank you for this story that we've just, we've just read and, and looked at. Um, th this story that it was a horrible, horrible situation for this woman. And yet Jesus handled this moment with just incredible grace. And, 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 I, and I love the fact that he didn't just show grace to the, to the woman who absolutely deserved the consequence of her choices and her sin, but he even showed grace to, the, to just the nasty religious leaders who had worked up this scheme to 
parade her in front of everybody. And instead of doing to them the way they did to her, Jesus showed grace to his attackers. And he shared what their sin was probably, maybe, but he shared it privately instead of publicly. And so God, just help us to take a, a, a lesson from this as we move forward and we move into our, our, our new building. Um, God, we, we, we wanna make sure that the way we talk to people and the things that we do are really making a difference in the lives of the, the people and the culture around us. That we're not just doing church in a way that we're saying everybody else has to conform to us, but we're doing church in a, in a way that is impactful and meaningful and just like Jesus, opens the door to repentance and reconciliation, whether that person that we're dealing with ever steps through it or not. We need to keep those doors open and we want you to help us do that, Father. Thank you for the love that you give us and thank you for this morning and thank you for your word that we can know how to live and love and look like Jesus because of it. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.